this is the commentary for chapter eight of Miss Macintosh, my darling. Somebody had called it a reading guide uh, on Twitter, and I haven't called it a reading guide because I don't, I don't want to, I don't know. That's just not the impression that I want to make with it. Like, I'm not telling people how to read this book or what interpretations, what interpretations to take away from this book. It's more of, um, that's why I had it more as a commentary and, um, analysis will come later just, and I'm trying to pull together everything that Miss, that I can get that Miss Young said about her work. Um, I do plan at some point to take a trip to Yale to see her writings. I, you know, very much want to do that. Um, and that's why I think I've given myself a pretty good window of time to hopefully get there, uh, go through, go through and see that material and see if there's anything to add from what I can publicly let, gather from, from interviews and articles and, and things of that nature. But yeah, that's why I haven't called it a, a reading guide. Um, it was a very nice gesture. Thank you very much. Whoever said that, but, um, um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it as a, as a commentary kind of thing. Um, we're on chapter eight. Character list is Vera Cartwheel, Moses Hunnaker, the bus driver, Madge Cape Horn, and Homer Cape Horn. Synopsis. Oh, some corrections. Um, I'm working on, I'm on chapters, I just finished chapter 71. And I take that back. Musadora, I believe, is mentioned in, the, in that chapter. Um, it's just a passing reference. Um, there's kind of like all, so in this chapter, I think it started in chapter seven, like whenever the bus ride started and we were introduced to these characters, there is some kind of wrap up at the end of the book. Um, it, it, it appears that Musadora does, is mentioned, but there's nothing else. Like it, it's not expanded upon, but she is mentioned. Um, Let's see. What else? Somebody else, I thought. No, I think that was it. Oh, and I was looking up something because the, the pregnant man thing, uh, pregnant men, came up again because of Dr. O'Leary. And I know it was mentioned here, and it's mentioned again, chapter 70 to the last 10 chapters of the book. Um, or last chapters, 11, 12. Um, so I looked up a little bit to add to a note then when I saw it again, and it was, it's possibly, uh, um, because of the symptoms that Young put in it, that it's the sympathetic pregnancy, it's covad, it's French, covad's, or it's a sympathetic pregnancy. It's where men can and have experienced, um, symptoms like breast swelling and different. So a couple of things that she mentioned were symptoms of, of, of men having sympathetic pregnancy along with their wives. And then there's another part of it that uh, men were, uh, in, in some cultures, men had rituals that they um, performed to build bonds between the wife, the coming child, and the father. 
Okay, so that's it. Synopsis. The bus has almost arrived at its destination. First, it makes a stop at Beatrice Fitzgerald's house. Madge and Homer argue over whether Beatrice is a prostitute or not and the facts of her life. Vera thinks of Miss McIntosh and Moses of the old dock. They finally arrive at the village at night. So, just to give you a heads up, they arrive at the village at night, but then we don't hear about the village again until chapter 60-something. Um, so we don't come back to it. So, like, this starts the story, then there's a whole long interlude, and then we don't come back to the, to the end of the... We don't come back to the village until the end of the story. One, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 1. Vera describes the landscape they have passed through, including a note to its history, so that now it is this rich soil which has to be populated by wild swans and wild geese, wild herons and cranes and kingfishers, and chimney swallows, horny-tongued woodpeckers, and marsh butterflies. I have not looked any of those up. Um, check out the woodpeckers. Woodpecker name. Um, paragraph two. Vera comments that now it is all gray, wind and water. Perhaps it was the beginning of creation. Perhaps we had said farewell to earth. Paragraph three. Suddenly to Vera, the bus driver turns off at a graveyard when they are just about to reach their destination. Stone cipher means stone swampy creek. Long tree refers to the parish they came from in England. Thistleweight means thistle meadow. Chesterfield means Roman fort, open country. Dalton means from the valley town. Grebe means digger of ditches or graves or engraver of seals. Thomas is a common name meaning twin. White Hill is a Scottish name meaning white hall. Vera pictures the idyllic town she's about to travel to, that obscure village I had dreamed of, the beautiful life toward which I had traveled, that land of promise through eternity, there where the trees would blossom and where no flower would fade, there where the children would dance, where the young would not grow old, where the old would never die, for time should cease. What she sees is a shack with trash and junk strewn about. And yet someone had survived. The bus driver stops. Um... So a lot of this, a, a, a theme running through here is Vera having these idyllic, idyllic images of places and things and having that obliterated. <laughs> That's just like, so you could kind of, I guess, identify with that like like I have this picture it's a romantic it's a romanticism I have this romantic picture in my head of what this will be and then just you know to have it completely dashed I kind of get what she's because I do come from a small village a small town um that's where I grew up and and you do kind of see this I like the, the nod to nature because that is a big part of it um and then that feeling I mean we have a, a, a it's just the farm where the family gathers it was my grandparents um, and so there is this what she's describing here this beautiful life I mean whenever we go there it's very it's just very calm it's very peaceful I take my child with me my kid with me she's old now but I take my kid with me and she has and so it's it's neat because she has the same feelings I do about that place where it's just nature and peaceful and calm and you're at the farm and you know it's our farm um so so in a sense that does exist for people 
but this other part with a junk store, like you can go down. Most of the houses are really nice, but there's always that one house that my grandmother used to complain about because it's got all the junk in the yard. And she's like, oh, if somebody would just make them clean up that yard, even though they're out in the country, even though, you know, you're out in the country, you don't necessarily have rules about that kind of thing. I mean, they still burn their trash in a barrel. So you don't have those, you're not connected to city water or electricity, yes, but none of the other. So that's not... Even though there's a sense of there's no rules there, it would make even if my grandmother would comment every time we drove by that house because it was even though it was five miles down the road, away from her. It's not like she saw it, but she had to pass it by it, and she would go on about that house every time, like ah, all the trash in the in the in the yard. It was just it's just a trashy place. So I totally identify with what Vera's seeing. Paragraph four, Moses says, I go to change horses. That old horse is tired. He leaves the bus and enters the house. So, paragraph five, Madge wonders why the woman in the house turns out the lights. Do you think it is possible that a woman can be ugly in the daylight but beautiful or someone else in the darkness? You know that a man cannot be deceived unless he wants to be deceived. Madge says she always leaves the light on so the man knows who he's with. The woman in the house is named Patrice. Madge says she is old, only has one eye, and is the ugliest old hag for miles. Six, Homer, who always looks on the bright side, says she's clean. She brings my mother's laundry and washes the clothes so clean. I've known her all my life and no one ever works so hard. He attributes this to her last name, which is Fitzgerald, and that every name that begins with Fitz is royalty in America, except that it is a bastard line in England. This belief is because of Charles II, who named his bastard son Fitzroy, and a duke who named his illegitimate son Fitzclarence. Bar sinister is the popular and erroneous term for Ben sinister. Ben sinister is a diagonal stripe on a shield said to be a sign of bastardy. Seven, Madge scoffs at the notion and reminds Homer that Beatrice is a common prostitute that even he has visited. Toboggan is a type of sled. Eight, Homer disagrees and says she lost her eye when a little boy shot at her with his bow and arrow. Nine, Madge says she's the oldest prostitute in all this country. That's why she turns out the light. She never did want anybody to see her. Now she's losing the other eye. Ten, Homer says, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. The bus driver's just gone in there to get a drink. That, uh, the three wise monkeys, I just looked that up today because it's in the last part of the book. Eleven, Madge insists that since Homer hung around Josh Hathaway in the bar, then he should know about Beatrice. 12. Homer insists that Moses is just picking up laundry or a message. 13. Madge disagrees. 14. Homer remembers Beatrice had a son that joined the Navy and traveled all over the world sending postcards home. 15. Madge thinks Homer is crazy. 16. Homer says that old Doc used to go there and he may be the father of Beatrice's son. Borneo is the third largest island in the world. Singapore is a sovereign island city-state. Japan is an island country in East Asia. The China Sea is a stretch of water between China and Taiwan. The Rock of Gibraltar is a monolithic limestone promontory located in the British territory of Gibraltar, near the southwestern tip of Europe on the Iberian Peninsula. 17. Madge asks, how do you know so much about it? 18. Homer explains that how he knows about the Rock of Gibraltar. 19. Madge questions Homer has heard anything. You always act so dumb. 20. It just shows Homer said you haven't heard everything there is. 21. Vera starts thinking of Miss McIntosh. Was it really true that one relived in three minutes all one's life as the drowning are said to do? 
that old scenes pass before one's eyes, childhood and youth? Can a drowning person remember everything, even those things which none had seen? Whose life? Where was Miss McIntosh, my darling? Now aloud I cried. Who had killed an old woman or an old man? Who had killed a child? 22. Homer argues that Josh died by accident and not murder. 23. Moses, the bus driver, returns and they are off again to the village, which, as I understood, was sheltered on one side by these sheltering gray hills, a semicircle, and on the other side, edged into the wild, turbulent river and the open plain beyond. 24. Moses chimes in about old Josh Hathaway's death. That was the way of these secretive women. They shut you in or they locked you out. If his wife didn't kill him, then who did? 25. Moses retracts and says it can't be proved if he was murdered one way or the other, so both sides are right. 26. Moses then says that Josh was murdered one way or the other by a person or by God. Would he trust God if there was a God? It was a fine thing trusting God, for who had caused all this trouble? The one thing Moses will not trust is politicians or old Doc. 27. Moses thinks he would just go out in his own way, the bus driver would, and take the shortest road. 28. Moses sees no purpose in seeing old Doc. When you got to go, you got to go. 29. Moses tries to think of an old of when old Doc stopped practicing medicine. Moses mentions the 1918 influenza pandemic of the H1N1 virus. And at the end of the book, just in chapter 71, you find it exactly. Paragraph 30. Moses claims he, has made in, he was made in God's image to rule over everything in the whole benighted universe. He has no use for medical intervention. Thirty-one. Moses goes on again that old Doc is not in his right mind and not practicing anymore. He mentions that the old Doc may have intended to, may have tended to a wounded bank robber. Oh my gosh, that was mentioned. Okay, that bank robber is mentioned in uh, seventy-one as well. Thirty-two. Moses proclaims hell in the Furies. There's no hell and there's no heaven and there's no doctor. He mentions a beautiful movie star dying unknown at the tavern. He alludes that old Doc might have performed abortions as well as pregnancies. Who's pregnant and who's conceived? 33. Moses explains it's not that he wouldn't be alright if he were alright, and it's not that everything he thinks he's doing isn't right, but the fact of the matter is he's not doing what he thinks he's doing, so it's not alright by a long shot. <laughs> I like that one. 34. Moses continues complaining about the old Doc wanting to fix him and that it's all in his own brain. 35. Moses asks a series of questions. What's that snatch me from the jaws of living death? What's that me hanging by a thread? 36. Moses expresses some sympathy, sympathy for old Doc, and then he adds about Jacqueline. Death never entered her, heart, her head. Kind of infatuated with life, she is prettier now than she ever was. 37. Moses returns to complain about the old Doc. If old Doc comes, they say, to wake us up, tell him we are dead, that we just passed on. 38. Moses talks about the impermanence of life, a clean bill of health. Who wants one? What good would it do? If it is a fiddle one day and high feather one day, gone the next, and nobody mourns you. 39. Moses concludes, we are all mortal and there's no difference. The way I see it, there's no immortal case. 40. Moses lists things that don't care if you die and the small things that can kill you. 41. Well, I'll be damned. I got here the same way he did. Who cured anybody? Any mother's son or daughter? But the thread never broke. 42. Moses continues about old Doc and how even though you know it's useless, you can't help being nice to him. 
and carrying on as if nothing was wrong. Understand, old Doc would be all right if the world was. A frail, frail vehicle this life is. Leith means oblivion, forgetfulness, or concealment. Charon is the ferryman of Hades in the underworld. 43. Moses continues listing body parts. If I don't care, why should he care about this old body, this mortal corruption? Let it go. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. 44. Moses continues how Doc should let just let things be. Am I not well? Is there anything eating on me? 45. Leviathan is a mythical creature in the form of a sea serpent. Moses uses a now archaic version of English with thy and thou to describe the Leviathan. 46. Moses asks what happened to famous people like Julius Caesar, a Roman general and statesman, and Hercules, who is a half-god in Greek and Roman mythology, famous for his strength and adventures. He answers that they're all wormwood, dust, ashes. Then he complains, was I not made to rule these damned blue jays? 47. Moses continues that old Doc is imagining everything. Who threw that poor little baby into the winter grass last winter? Twasn't I, twasn't you, twasn't there. Damned if I ever saw what I saw. Damned if I ever heard what I heard. Damned if it's still not crying in my ear. Oh, so this... Okay, so this is a connection to Esther Longtree's story at the end. Oh, shoot. It's really weird going through the edits in the first part of the book, but working on the commentary for the last part of the book. It helps. It helps to break this book up. Um, so I'm really seeing connections where I did not see them before. I, I had no idea. I had not seen them before. And probably if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't have seen them. So where's that other one that I saw that was something? Okay. So the wounded bank robber, the, the tavern... Landlady. So the tavern landlady in the last chapters mentions this event about the bank robber. I mean, it's just in passing, and it's kind of like. So now that I think about it, I, I'm sorry I'm jumping to chapter 71, but it's the one I just worked on. So um, uh, when I think about it, it's almost the tavern landlady knows all the rumors and all the gossip and all the quirks and everything that's going on. And so when she's talking to Vera, she comments on it. And, and it's just a, it's a paragraph, but I mean, it's like one sentence. It's not, not like she goes into detail. She goes, oh yeah, like, like I hear this, I hear this, 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 and she gives, gives her version. So this one is Esther Longtree talks about this in her chapters, and it has to do with the children. You're just going to have to get to Esther Longtree. I don't know what to make of Esther Longtree. I'm hoping by going through it like I am that I will be able to make a little more sense than I have after reading it twice. 
Um, it's just, it's complicated. Um, although, although I have to say Young in the last chapter sums it up really well, what Esther represents. It's just getting there is difficult. It's just a very difficult section of the book and even to read, it's very dark. Um, Forty-eight. Moses compares old Doc to old Father Time and wants to get rid of them both. Moses can't completely condemn old Doc because he's a Republican. Forty-nine. Moses declares, "We're just bumping in according to schedule." Fifty. Vera describes the ace. What's oh, wrong? Vera describes a spectral village was gliding by, seeming a conspiracy of illusion, and not a brick or stone or wood, but this was it, and we had come. Here where no sound might disturb the peace, the dead ear, no sound but the past, the dead, loud voices. Last paragraph of the chapter, 51. Vera says, it is different to see the village at night than during the day. The night captures these voices, forever the aberrations, the irregularities, old, amorphous shapes like those which creep through mist and fog. Cyclops, men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders, dead souls, unsolvable mystery, that fleeting image, that dream within the dream. So this dream within a dream is a reoccurring theme throughout the book. This is from Plato, Aristotle, and Descartes. Descartes? Descartes? Um, so then I happen to look up look it up again because I think this is one of the first mentions of the dream. I could be wrong. I, I do a whole thing where I've looked at every instance of the word dream in the book. And, um, and there's a lot of them. And, but the dream within the dream motif is a big thing that she's fixated on. Um, I, I want to say it's... I don't know that she named Descartes... Descartes... Uh, by name. I don't... I won't know until I go... I don't remember that. I remember her mentioning William James being influenced and by him and St. Augustine. So I remember those two. I don't remember a clear answer she gave about the influence of Descartes, but, or Descartes, I don't know how to say it, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, but this dream within a dream motif comes up again and again and again, um, uh, I think therefore I am is what he's famous for, and uh, he said, you can't, I can't prove that I'm not dreaming all the time, like I can't prove reality, he, and, and dualism, and she was in and I think the work reflects a lot of this idea of dualism. Um, then when I was looking up again about uh, because Young was a poet, uh, when I was looking up again the dream within the dream and references to it, I found Edgar Allan Poe had wrote the poem, A Dream Within a Dream. And it was very interesting. I, I of course, went down that rabbit hole. And the first stanza of the poem ends with a statement that everything we see or seem to see is a dream within a dream. And then the last stanza ends with a question. Is everything we see or seem to see a dream within a dream? And I have a feeling... So because she's a poet, I would... Uh, of course she knew who Poe was. And because she was a poet, I have no doubt that she read Poe. I did. I read everything when I, about it from him when I was a kid, except the poetry. I've never been a huge poetry fan. Don't shoot me. Um, so looking this up just for this, and this was a tidbit I found just going back over this chapter, the, the 
what I'd written about this chapter. Um, I'm wondering if that's the, if that's a little clue into how she's handling, she's handling it, like she's making statements. But then, like I told you, there's a lot of question marks, like a lot of things that could have been, that Young could have written as a statement. Instead, she writes it as a question. And she, she just phrases it a question. The meaning is still the same. Well, the meaning is not the same because it, it, whether you end something with a period or question changes it. But the, the meaning is implied, but it, but it gives it this question mark. And, and because I found this poem by Edgar Allan Poe, you know, named the dream within a dream, and this, you know, last two lines, the first one ends with a statement, the next one ends with a question. That's making me think about how Young is using questions in the book. And is she, is she focusing, like the questions, the question marks stand out way more than the periods <laughs> in my mind reading this book. Um, I don't, it, feel free to leave a comment on whether you agree, whether you agree or not, or if you uh, see something different. So, um, so I wonder if that's what she's questioning every time that she's using this question mark where other people or it's almost like things we take for granted that are facts. Like that's a fact. You make a statement about a fact. It's the truth. You make a statement about the truth. And instead she's using the question marks and this is everything we see or seem to see a dream within a dream and she's making that statement every time she uses a question mark every time you think oh this should be clear cut and it's not and she uses that question mark and um so that to me is really interesting and something this little tidbit that i found after going back over this chapter eight it's just a big thing um that i thought wow that really stands out um i'm gonna this dream within a dream, I'm going, to try, I'm going to leave the background about dualism, Descartes, and uh, the philosophy of it uh, in the third book in the series, um, To All My Darlings, and that one, we'll, we'll go over that one too. So that's going to be in the end. But, um, but yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, and that just seemed, that just seemed to pop out. So, and that is it. Chapter 9 was a relatively short chapter, and we're going to go ahead and there. And I will be back tomorrow, because I am going to have time tomorrow, even though it's a Saturday, to uh, go through chapter 9. And that's it. So, is everything you see or seem to see a dream within a dream? Good question to end this on. Uh, okay, enjoy. Bye.